0: Ah, uh, good morning. How we doing? Good. Uh, every every once in a while, something happens that you just got to share with somebody else, right? Anyone ever have that happen? Like something happens, to you, you got I got to tell somebody, right? Okay, so I had one of those things happen this week, and uh, man, I you're, I'm gonna, you're my somebody. Okay, I'm going to share it with you. I got a letter this week. Okay. And this letter needs a little backstory. I got to give you a warm-up for why this letter came to my house, though it was undeserved. A few years ago, I was living in Cincinnati, and I was working there as a as a college pastor in the northern suburbs, right by the north campus of the University of Cincinnati. Now, at that time, Cincinnati, uh, the UC, was about 37,000 students. It was one of the largest universities in the country. And it's renowned for its research. It's also renowned for having one of the best music conservatories in the country, in the world, honestly. But uh, about the time that I was there... UC decided to take an undertaking. Alumni, board of trustees decided what they wanted to do was to make a shift in the culture of the campus. It was known historically as a campus that was basically to that point as residential. Those 37,000 students that were attending that campus were coming from all over, but they didn't live on the campus. So they decided to invest billions into that campus to make new residences like new dwellings, apartment-style dorms, And had this huge push to create a commuter campus downtown on the heart of UC's main campus. And then the school called me. Now, I have no idea why they called. I was a little shocked by the call. But they called and they asked me to come and meet with them. So I sat down with those who were in power. And they shared with me this vision to make this residential campus campus more commuter. And the dream was brilliant. But they also had the foresight to look a little further and to go, you know, even if we were to build all these dwellings, it wouldn't necessarily make this a commuter campus. So they had the foresight to recognize that community and, and, and a community that people wanted to spend time in needed more than just dwelling places. So. They said, we understand what you're doing on the northern side of the city, in the northern suburbs with your college ministry. Now, mind you, we had grown. We had seen some numeric success, and we had gained favor on the north campus of UC. But I don't believe that we had the type of success that merited this phone call or this discussion. They did. They said, whatever it is you're doing up there, we want you to come do that here. And I said, uh, (laughs) all I do is talk about Jesus. Now, what you need to understand is at that time UC was one of the darkest spiritual campuses on the globe. I could go on for hours about all the things that take place on this campus. At the time that they had conversation with me, there were about 37,000 students on the campus, undergrad, However, there's about 200 people that attend campus ministries every week. The largest gathering of those 200, and mind you, campus ministries included a group of atheists on the campus. Anything that seemingly looked religious or philosophical was thrown under campus ministries. In total, about 200 a week. The largest group on that campus was about 30 people gathering to worship Jesus. And so they called me and said, whatever it is you're doing there, we want you to come and do that here. Now, understanding what I just said to you about the uh, spiritual darkness of this campus and its receptivity to things of Jesus, I thought this a scam. I thought I was being set up. And so I, I just kind of immediately thought... Uh, Well, let me walk with you around the campus, tour me. And I'm thinking that what they're going to do is like, if they really wanted this, if they're really serious, they're going to take me, a minister of the gospel, and they're going to stick me off campus somewhere that no one can find, or in some remote closet somewhere where, you know, near campus that no one can get into, and they'll say, hey, just have your little spiritual gathering there. And 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 then you know, we helped and we tried and we even brought in the Jesus guy, but but you know, like we gave it a shot, right? We just want to build community. Whatever it is you're doing there wants you to do it here. So they toured me around and we walked straight into the largest gathering facility on the campus, the largest meeting space. It's glass on both ends. It's gorgeous. It oversits in the heart of the campus, the, the, the main courtyard, and looks over everything. And then on the backside where we would set up the stage, on the backside is all glass overlooking Nippert Stadium, which is the second oldest stadium in all of the country for football. It's a historic stadium. So it is gorgeous. Cannot be missed. This is the, They said, we want you to use this. I went, what? I mean, it seats like a thousand. Like, I was like, this is um, unbelievable. This is amazing. Like how much? They were like, nothing. Whatever you're doing there, come and do it here, please. And so I drove away just like dumbfounded. And I said, please let uh, let me pray about this and go back and talk to my team. So I did, I went back, talked to my team, made some phone calls, tried to build some connection with the campus ministry that exists there already and went back and prayed on it. My team said, we need to do this. We developed a plan. And a year from that meeting, almost a year to the date, we opened our doors for the first time in that meeting space. We called it the gathering. 500 students from that campus showed up the first night. That first night, 500 showed up and from there it took off. Now, back to the letter. I opened this letter and I read these words. Now, mind you, I noticed that the seal on the outside looked a little important. But when I opened the letterhead and saw the top, the presidential seal, I realized this was no normal letter. It read, Mr. Lett, you are cordially invited, your presence requested on the East Lawn for a ball on the 25th of September, 2019, commemorating those who under the age of 50 have made groundbreaking contributions to community and the development of the millennial generation in the state of Ohio. What? <laughs> like I I opened it and I was like, "What?" Like the East Lawn, like I know where that is, like 1600 Pennsylvania Avenue. Like I know what the East Lawn is. Um, And I, all I could think was like, uh, why, I've never heard of this ball. This has gotta be a joke. What is this for the state of Ohio? So I make a phone call to some people on the numbers that were listed. And sure enough, like the, the lady on the other end was like, I feel like she was like this. Like super matter of fact, like, yes, there's the ball, we represent all states, blah blah like like it was super serious. And like it's no it was like this is not a joke, this is happening, you're invited. And I was like, I'm not even in that city anymore. I don't even live there anymore. How how did you find me? Made me super skeptical. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> like I got real nervous. And so I, uh, I started making phone calls. I started uh, looking at the hotel list they had sent, started checking flights. Still a little in disbelief, went in to talk to Heather and said, hey, I got a letter. Uh, I, don't, I don't even know how to explain it. So we started checking everything out. And uh, they, they said we have to RSVP within a certain amount of time because we have to give proper notification. They sent a list of those that are going to be seated in our section, some at our table, of those that are also being represented at night. Listen to this. As if this wasn't enough, listen. Here it is. Now, the, seated with Heather and I. Now, I want you to s- let that sink in. Okay. Okay. Our Rob Deerdick and Guest, for the millions he's contributed to the millennial subcultures of southeast Ohio. If you don't know, Rob Deerdick is a professional skateboarder. You've probably seen him all over MTV. He has invested millions in opening skate parks all over Dayton and greater Cincinnati. LeBron and Savannah James. <laughs> for their contributions to the underprivileged in, at, youth in Akron and northeast Ohio. Urban and Shelley Meyer for their contributions to both a boy, a big brothers and big sisters of Columbus and apparently Catholic Charities of Columbus. So, like, I could read on, but I'll probably pass out. Like, there's nothing more to be said. Like, with those people, I was like, Heather and I? Like, we are nobody. Like, how? Like, what? So, So, we were... We checked all our flights, looked at rooms, started to book it. We have a family in D.C. We're like, hey, that might work out even. But here's the thing. We checked our calendars. And we checked our calendars last. On September 25th, 2019. Now, the red carpet, it told me, opens at 4 p.m. for that evening. We have a dentist appointment at 3 p.m. <laughs> September 25th, 2019. I mean, like, I don't know how that math works. There's no way I can get my dentist and still make it to DC later that night. No, no plane flies that fast, not, you know, not Southwest. So here's the thing. We can't go. Uh, we're, I'm serious. We're we're not going. the The reality is, we book our we book our dentist appointments like as a family, <laughs> like a year in advance. I mean, like a year. It's super hard to get in to see my dentist. And I don't know, but I don't want to mess that up. I've got some things that need to be worked on. So we're we're not gonna go. I don't know why I shared that. It has little to do with what we're talking about, but I just had to tell somebody. Maybe uh, someone will sit next to Rob, and it'll be an amazing, amazing night for them. <sighs> okay. So, how many of you that emotion you feel right now is a little bit enraged? Like a little bit like, Justin, you've got to be kidding me. Like move your dentist appointment. You know what I'm saying? Like it doesn't matter if it takes a year, just go next year. Use a lot of like uh, whitener, you know, whatever. Here's the thing. That emotion that you feel when you hear that I'm going to miss out on a a once-in-a-lifetime opportunity for something as trivial as a dentist appointment is the way every evangelist feels when they recognize that there's an invitation that's been given to every person on the planet to come and dine with the creator of the universe, not the president, not Rob Deerdick, but the creator of the universe, and people blow that invitation off daily for things as trivial as a dentist appointment. Amen? You hear what I'm saying? So here's the deal. I, this is made up. Uh, this came from my grandmother's, like... Like, deal. Like, I don't, I don't know anybody. I mean, I, I see Gary Storts walk in here. I think Mayor Carl Dean came in. Like, I, I don't know anybody. The stuff, the stuff that happened at UC, that was real. That was great, man. We got to see some really cool stuff happen there. But I didn't have the president of the university write me, let alone the president of the U.S. But see, that's the point. We we would never allow any friend. To miss out on such a grandiose opportunity. If you were given that same invitation. I would fight tooth and nail to make sure you were present. But how many of us allow our friends day in and day out. Even those who know the Lord. To miss the daily invitation to come and sit at his table and to dine with him. Because we have something more important to do, and we will give excuse after excuse for things that are so trivial that they supersede our time or the invitation to receive new life in Jesus. Just me? We were a little more excited when I wasn't going to see the president. To better explain this, I want to look at John 4. Turn to your Bibles. If you've got it, it'll be on the screen. John 4, uh, verse 25. We're going to do this uh, from the back moving forward. Here it is. Verse 25, it says, The woman said to him, I know that the Messiah is coming who is called Christ. When he comes, he'll explain everything to us. Jesus told her, I, the one whom speaking to you, am he. Then his disciples arrived and they were amazed that he was talking with a woman. And no one said, what do you want? Or why are you talking with her? And the woman left her water jar, went into town, told the people, come see a man who told me everything I ever did. Could this be the Messiah? They left the town and made their way to him. In the meantime, the disciples kept urging him, Rabbi, eat something. But he said, I have food to eat that you do not know about. The disciples said to one another, could someone have brought him something to eat? My food is to do the will of him who sent me to finish his work, Jesus told them. Don't you say there are still four months, four more months, and then comes the harvest. Listen to what I'm telling you. Open your eyes, look at the fields, because they are ready, ripe, or better translated, white for harvest. Harvest. The reaper is already receiving pay and gathering fruit for eternal life so that the sower and the reaper can rejoice together. For in this case, the saying is true. One sows and another reaps. I sent you to reap for what you didn't labor. Others have labored and you have benefited from their labor. Now, many Samaritans from the town believed in him because of what the woman said when she testified. He told me everything I ever did. So when the Samaritans came to him, they asked him to stay with them, And he stayed there two days. Many more believed because of what he said. And they told the woman, we no longer believe because of what you said. Since we've heard for ourselves and know this is the, really the savior of the world. Number one. The function of all evangelists is to gather and recruit. They would never in their lives allow their friends to miss the most important party, the most important invitation that exists. They gather and recruit, they throw parties, they bring people to the table of Jesus. Look at this woman. In hearing that Jesus was the Messiah, she immediately runs into the city and immediately gathers everyone to come and meet the man that could change their lives. It's just like we sang a moment ago, when I trust you, I don't need to understand. That's going to make a whole lot more sense when we unpack who she is a little bit further. But when I trust you, I don't need to understand. How many of you make God go through a, a logical litmus test before you'll follow and obey? right? I do it. I make God do some logical gymnastics sometimes trying to dialogue and piece it all together. But here's the thing. When we trust him, we don't need to understand he is God. All the people in the city because she comes in and says, come meet a man that told me everything I ever did. They all come running. They follow her out of the city. She whips up a hurricane in a moment because they all hear her testimony and they can't deny it. They have to come. They, uh, an evangelist has this innate ability to get people in the room. They have this innate ability to gather a crowd. They just do. You know these people. You know that person that just, whether it's the chess team or the football team, if that person invites, everyone is coming. You know what I'm talking about? You break out the ball. I break out a ball because I'm not an evangelist. I break out a ball, not everybody wants to play. But they break out a ball, everybody's in. Make sense? They have that gift, and that is a God given gift. They often have the spiritual gifts of evangelism. Makes sense. Exhortation like encouragement, hospitality. They have the gift of helps, teaching, and even mercy. As these people are following her out, Jesus points to harvest time. He says, you're, you're in the time of year that they're sitting there. He goes, you are still saying we have four more months till we harvest. However, I tell you that today things are white for harvest. What he's saying is this. Jacob's well, where this whole setting is taking place, is about half a mile outside the city of Sicar. And to get into Sicar, you have to go down a hill and through a narrow pathway. So there's a, a road that runs from Sicar out to this well, half a mile out, and it is on a hillside. When he turns and looks to his disciples and says, "Time is white for harvest." You can imagine what he did was turn their eyes towards Saqqar, towards the city that they had just come out of. And like cotton ready for plucking, white turbans start popping up over that hillside. And he's talking about the people. He's talking about the Samaritans, the Samaritan men specifically who are coming for salvation. Jesus points out that the reaper and the sower will harvest and rejoice together the reaper the disciple is the one who will gather the crop that is taken in the sower is the one who will sow the seed they said it's not her message that changed us it's whose it's his he's the sower the reaper are his disciples the laborer that we read about was her you reap a harvest that you yourself didn't even work for. She went in and said, come meet a man who told me all I ever did. Didn't preach a sermon, didn't do anything else because she said that everyone is coming. Like hugely, you know people in your life that have this ability. How many of you know that person? This means yes. Just would you shake your head and we're all talking. Yes. Okay, so these people have that ability innately just to whip up a hurricane. The laborer brings, the sower sows, and the disciples reap. And here's, here's what says, that many Samaritans were saved. They believed. They believed because of his testimony, not hers. This is why I want to be clear. We have quantified the evangelist solely as a preacher in our our existence here in the West. We've quantified that as... Uh, Billy Graham and this image of going packing stadiums and grandiose response. That's not necessarily what we see right here in scripture. It's not necessarily what we read about when we read about Philip, the only person given the title evangelist in scripture. They had the gift of helps. They came alongside people. You see Philip come alongside people one by one, not a massive crowd. You see a crowd begin to follow because of what he says, so there is preaching involved, but it's not necessarily what quantified or enlisted him. That needs to be distinct. What I'm saying is so many people cripple themselves because they believe that we've turned the pulpit into a place where evangelists and the only, the only way that we measure a pastor is by the crowd they gather because we're making them do tricks making them be something maybe they're not wired to be, not naturally, and we turned the pulpit into the place where we measure uh, success for the pastor, not even necessarily their call. The evangelist really does a work because they're burdened just like you were, just like I would be for anyone who's given an invitation to the greatest party, once-in-a-lifetime chance, and people pass on it for trivial things. That's an evangelist and that's you. That's, that's, that is not necessarily someone who has to be on a stage to do that. You see, this is the picture, the way we see the Samaritan woman respond and take the gospel to the people and gather and get them to the table so they can hear vision, have their lives changed and then be discipled, be taught what it means to walk and live and love like Jesus. This is the picture of God's intent and function of the evangelist walking faithfully before Jesus. But see, there's an enemy, and that enemy is something we all face. Jesus called him the accuser, called him the father of all lies, and those lies are intended to cripple us. The battle that we face truly is spiritual, as Ephesians 6, 12 says. It's not in flesh and blood, but in the principalities, the dark, in the spiritual realm. And so when an evangelist gets crippled from doing how they're intended to, Just like any of us can be crippled by the lie that causes us not to function as God designed us to, but in a way that says I want to protect myself, we miss out. There was a lie that crippled this woman from walking as she was intended. I want to go back and we're going to look at John 4. We're going to see what was happening in her that kept her from doing the success that we see at the end of the chapter. When Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard he was making and baptizing more disciples than John, though Jesus himself was not baptizing, but his disciples were, he left Judea and went again to Galilee. He, traveled through, he had to travel through Samaria. I want to say that again. He had to travel through Samaria. That is better translated, he must need go or he had compulsion to go through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sakaar near the property of Jacob. That where Jacob had given his son Joseph his well, Jacob's well was there and Jesus worn out from his journey, sat down by the well. It was about noon and a woman came, a Samaritan woman said, came near to draw. He turned to her and said, give me a drink because his disciples had gone into town to buy food. How is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink, a Samaritan woman she asked him, For Jews do not associate with Samaritans. Jesus answered, If you knew the gift of God and who it is who's saying to you, Give me a drink, you would ask him, and he would give you living water. Sir, said the woman, You don't even have a bucket, and the well is deep. So where do you get this living water? You aren't greater than our father Jacob, are you, who gave us this well, drank for it himself, his sons, his livestock. Jesus Jesus said, everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. Whoever drinks of the water that I will give, you'll never thirst. In fact, the water I give will become in him a well of water springing up into eternal life. Sir, the woman said to him, give me this water that I won't get thirsty or have to come here again to draw. He said, go call your husband and come back here. I don't. I don't have a husband," she answered. "You've answered correctly. You don't have a husband, for you've had five husbands, and the man you now live with is not your husband. What you've said is true." Sir, so the woman said, I, "I perceive that you're a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but the Jews say the place to worship is in Jerusalem." Jesus told her, "Believe me, woman. An hour is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem." You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do because salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and now is here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. Yes, the Father wants such people to worship Him. God is spirit and those who worship Him must worship Him in spirit and in truth. In the very next passage is what I read before. She drops her water pots after she hears... Jesus say, I'm the Messiah, and she runs into the city. Just that interchange. The lie of every evangelist, the fear that cripples them, I'll be forgotten. I'll be forgotten. How else would you define this woman? This woman has been ostracized and shunned for her mistakes. Anyone know what I'm talking about? She comes alone to the well at noon. This is not normal. She comes because the women of her community who would culturally gather together and either come the night before or before daybreak in the morning would come to the well together and collectively carry water pots back into the the city for daily chores take care of the breakfast, to wash the clothes, to do the things they need to. And they did it collectively because water pots, when they're full, get heavy. This is a deep well that's some hundred feet. So that water is deep and heavy and cold, and they helped each other carry those back. She comes by herself. This well specifically sits a half a mile outside of Sakaar. The Samaritan woman had been rejected by the women of her community, and she walks that half mile outside of the city every day at noon by herself because she's avoiding any present. uh, She avoids any of the present. Now, I want to be clear. There were closer wells to draw from. There were a number of choices that existed outside of just this one. They were closer. They're more present. She avoids them all. All those options are out the window. Why? Why? because she wants to avoid any potential run-in or ridicule that will come from the other women. Her sin for wanting to be loved forced her into a practice of promiscuity because she was crippled by a lie and she was looking for love in all the wrong places. That gave her reputation as a harlot and the women disowned her. None of the women, men wanted to be seen with her. Here's what I want to say about an evangelist that is very important. When insecure, they tend to push others away. Either they can't get out of bed and they don't throw parties because they're afraid they'll be forgotten. Or they, they push people away rather than recruit because of their own neediness. They'll find themselves hopping around everywhere, forcing themselves into conversations or parties, inviting themselves. They weren't even invited to. Why? Because they're so terrified they'll be forgotten. And that pushes people away because they're overly needy. Look at the Samaritan woman. She looked for love in all the wrong places, marrying five different men officially and then divorcing to only be found living with a man, hoping that this might be the one where she could finally receive true love. She threw parties for men in order that they might love her in return. But they instead left her and they used her. They took from her and in the end, the enemy was right there in her ear to lie and to say the thing that she's most afraid of. See, already forgotten. So she is ostracized. She's alone. She's by herself and everyone else has walked away. The woman of the city, the women of the city could not culturally accept her because of her promiscuity. But here's the thing that's so amazing about this. Jesus should have never culturally been found in a conversation with this woman. Men did not talk to women in public, not even their own wives. That did not happen. Let alone a rabbi talking to, a, to an immoral woman. That was unacceptable. In fact, he should have been stoned to death. He was taking his own life into his hands. It says that Jews didn't converse with Samaritans. They had no dealings with them. They didn't even eat food that Samaritans may have handled. When it said, I must need go through Samaria, any dignified Jew knowing that Judea was to the south, Galilee to the north, you only have water on the on the uh, west. So going left wasn't an option. You could cross the Jordan, take the mountain range to the east, but that added a week to your journey. And then you crossed back over the Jordan and went into Galilee. That's what the most dignified of Jews did. They would go through the land of Perea filled with Gentiles who they considered dogs, okay, to simply avoid those they considered lesser Samaritans. Samaria was the fastest route from point A to point B. And it wasn't a geographic compulsion that Jesus was under. It was a divine one. He was, he was compulsively enlisted by the Father to go to Samaria for this woman's salvation and the salvation of the others to follow. It was the divine calling. He went there for her and the for salvation of those. And to lead his disciples to recognize this new covenant that was going to be formed even included the worst of the worst. And they needed to get on board with that. He led them to places that they otherwise would have never gone. This invitation to new life was for everyone, even the Samaritan. Jesus' divine call, um, compulsion led to her, because here's the thing, what did he say? I want to just point out, I'm not, I don't want to influence, here it is. You can see his answer to the compulsion. I have food that you don't know about. It is to do the work of the one who sent me and finish it to completion. You hear it? He's talking about the woman. The very thing that they're in their minds asking about, but they dare not say because he perceived their thoughts. Why is he talking to this woman? He's saying, I had a job to do. I've done it. You're about to benefit as the reaper. Watch this. The laborer is bringing the crowd her response to him was this. When he offers salvation through the imagery of water, she desperately craves it. He uses her physical need and understanding for water. Something she understands well. Who here recognizes you can't survive without water? And he uses an illustration for salvation. She says, oh, sir, please give me this water that I may not have to come here again to draw. Translation, sir, please, I can't take one more day of making this embarrassing walk here by myself. I can't take on the shame of this any longer. I'm forgotten because I'm forgettable. You have people in your life who walk in your offices, live across the street from you, walk in your schools who genuinely believe they are unlovable because the lie in their life is loud and it's crippling. Shame does this to us. Guilt, I believe, is actually a decent thing. It can lead to conviction and it leads to a turning of life. But shame, shame is when we allow the guilt to become our defining persona. Shame is when we allow, uh, we allow the thing that, like the lie, to cripple us to the point where we start defining ourselves by it. And that's exactly who she was. Exactly what she was doing. Anyone else know what I'm talking about? Not guilt, but shame. It begins to define who we are because we listen and believe the words of the liar more so than we do our Lord. Her response was desperate because he spoke to her with honesty out of love, he spoke directly to her sin told her exactly what she'd ever done and he still was there taking his own life in his own hands, willing to risk it all so she could hear this truth and respond. That is love and honesty. How many of you love when people are honest enough with you despite how much it may be harmful to them themselves? You may not like what they have to say. You may reject them. This guy could die for what he was doing here but you, you appreciate someone loving you enough to be honest. His honesty changed her life. The reason we need to know that how we are called individually and the calling of those around us, this is why this is important, is so that we will know how to fight the lies that cripple our brother and sister, just like we see Jesus fight the lie that crippled this woman right here. Without that lie, what happened? the people that otherwise would never be seen with her, not even look in her direction. The moment she trusted in Jesus, a change happened so much that she ran into the city and everyone followed her out. Those who before, minutes ago, ignored her. We all need someone who will fight for us like that. Maybe that's what you need. Maybe you need to know that you're valuable, that someone in your life, sees, sees you. And will tell you honestly just how much so. Someone who will cripple the lie that cripples you and keeps you captive from the life that God intended for you. He didn't die in order for the shamed, the beaten down, and the ostracized to stay that way. Jesus gave his life so that you and I could live. He died So that you could see that shame and ostracization is no life. And it was never intended for you. It was never intended for me. Someone here today may need to hear that. You may need to hear that Jesus can change your life. Circumstances, he can change it. Jesus can literally move all that instantaneously like he did the woman at the well. In a moment... Did you see what happened right here in John 4? In a moment, the ostracized became the popular in a moment. Today, if that's you, and you go, I need that kind of change, like dramatic, immediate. And we're going to have prayer partners on the side here in a moment, and we're going to have staff available right here. I'll be up here today. You come. You come. I'd love to share with you honestly the truth about how your life can change forever how the ostracized can become the popular maybe you're here today and you go that's me that's that's me I'm definitely an evangelist like that's how I'm called that's how I'm wired but I've been crippled far too long by a lie that was never intended to rob me of the life that he intended today you got to choose to stop listening to that lie you got to stop letting your life be robbed by a lie and by the accuser you come today to his table and you look at the body that was broken so you could live. You look at the blood that was shed so you could be atoned for. And you trust him and you don't need to understand, let your circumstances pass away. You show a, an act of faith and trust and you watch by saying thanks how God moves upon you in your calling and re enlist you. It will be like the woman at the well. But maybe today you go, okay, I'm a believer. I know that, I'm a child of God, amen, but I'm definitely not an evangelist. I'm not that popular person and get the chess team and football team together. That's okay. But if you're here and you say, I am a child of God that's been crippled for far too long by the lies of the enemy and I'm not living the life that God intended for me, this altar will be wide open. You come, say thanks and go, I want exactly what you want for me and I'll do whatever You want me to do and I encourage you don't come alone. It's always encouraging because you're coming individually to do work with the Lord to respond to Jesus individually because of your personal relationship. But he didn't leave you alone. He gave you a spiritual community that can fight for you. Let them fight for you even by holding your hand.